0: Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. You'll know that the growth of the Christian church in Africa has been unprecedented and with that growth comes religious tensions. Christian revival conditions have pushed the Christian church to number... Catch this, an estimated 500 million believers across the African continent. So when it comes to elections, in many of the nations in Africa, there's often a simmering risk of ethnic and religious backlash. Well, we're turning our attention today to the Nigerian presidential election that's coming up on the 25th of February. And there is a Christian presidential candidate who is ahead in the polls. Now, ethnic tensions are soaring and there are fears that high levels of violence could cause the elections to be fatally compromised. And then there's the growing threat to the Christian church in Nigeria, potentially vulnerable to Islamic terror. Well, our special guest today, Elizabeth Kendall, is back with us, Religious Liberty Analyst and and Advocate for the Persecuted Church. Elizabeth, a former Principal Researcher for the World Evangelical Alliance, Religious Liberty Commission. She's also an Adjunct Research Fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology. And you can get detailed insights into persecution of Christians around the world at her website, elizabethkendall.com. Elizabeth, A special welcome back to 2020.
1: And thanks for having
0: me again, Neil. Elizabeth, this potentially is a pivotal point, isn't it, in the history for Nigeria. I wonder if you've got an overall picture that you can paint for us as to what's happening with the coming elections just two weeks away.
1: Look, I'm I'm amazed that this is not actually a bigger issue in international media. Um, I mean, to be honest, we don't hear... In Australia here we don't hear much about Africa full stop Um, I think we might have got a little soundbite on SBS about the Islamic State terror attack on the church in Democratic Republic of Congo a few weeks ago but it was you'd miss it if you blinked and here we have the biggest nation in Africa Nigeria with the highest uh, biggest economy and everything uh, an oil producing state with mega cities dotted throughout it. And it has this election coming up that is different to any election that has gone before it. It could be explosive. Many people really do fear that it could be, and I've heard this used term, term used several times, centrifugal. In other words, it could blow the country apart. And, uh, everything is in my, Opinion stacking up in that direction. I'm very, very anxious about it, and this will impact over like over 100 million Christians, and one of the uh, world's largest missionary sending uh, Christian communities. So it, it's really, really very, very serious.
0: The rubber hits the road here, and I guess we could reflect, and we won't spend a lot of time. But we've had earlier conversations that. When the Christian church grows uh, with the dynamism that it has in a continent like Africa, uh, there are going to be all sorts of conflict and tensions that arise because you have religious conflict, uh, religious tensions. And so in Nigeria, a population around 220 million people how do you describe the Christian population now in Nigeria compared to perhaps uh, the other side of the equation, uh, the Islamic population?
1: Well, Nigeria is a very complicated country. So you've got you know the British came into Nigeria in the the late eighteen hundreds, and they ruled Nigeria first of all as two protectorates. They saw it the most completely distinct. You know the north the Muslim North and the uh, mostly animist pagan South. They had very high opinion of the North because it had this Islamic culture that meant they had madrasas, they had law courts, they had all the things that united the the Fulani and the House of Peoples uh, in their Islam and kept them ordered. And they viewed this as a very civilized Uh, part of the country and they looked at the south which was more tribalized and without any sort of centralization you know not like you get in, in an islamic community rather just tribes often at war with each other and and filled with horrible sort of like occultic practices and the killing of twins the killing of of all sorts of uh, people. It was uh, very much a culture of death uh, amongst the pagan tribes. They viewed them as chaotic and uncivilized, just living on the edge of savagery. They had very low opinion of them. So they ruled them as two completely separate protectorates. But in 1914, they decided to rule Nigeria as one, making Nigeria one country and, and a federation of three regions. So the north, the House of Fulani, Muslim north, was one region. Then the southeast, which was mostly Yoruba, ethnic Yoruba, that was the main tribe. And mixed, mixed religions there was another region. And then the uh, Ibo in the in the east, so east of the Niger River, was the third region. And something very interesting happened. So the British had had this very high view of the House of Fulani Muslim, what they called a civilization. That they and they could basically outsource everything to them. They they just let them get on with their education and their law and their administration. But as soon as they started introducing. Uh, like British education and British sort of constitutional law and administration on how you run a country. And Christian missionaries were coming in and uh, something happened. So the southern tribes uh, actually embraced the gospel um, many, well, especially the Igbo, more than anybody else, embraced the gospel as a, as a culture of life that liberated them from, from the darkness of the fearful occultic way of life they had and the and war and the conflict. And they embraced it and they embraced British education as a way to progress while the North rejected the lot. So what happened then is you get the southerners and especially the Igbo from the southeast advanced in education and within a couple of decades there were Igbo, African Igbo Christians, uh, uh, you know, graduating from British universities with, uh, you know, degrees in administration and uh, business and all sorts of things. So everything sort of changed. And what that did was it meant that, When the British actually left, um, the the Igbo were basically in positions of authority and administration all over the country. And the first president was an Igbo man. And then uh, things developed. What this did was it created great resentment in the north against the Igbo. And as soon as they had an opportunity, there was a military coup and the House of Fulani took over the military and the government and pretty well ethnically cleansed the entire north of the Christian Igbo people, who, who are reckoned to be about 98% Christian. They, ethnic, they killed about 30,000, displaced about a million, pushed them all, and this triggers the, the very famous Biafra War of the 1960s, where nearly 2 million Igbo died.
0: Well, what an outstanding insight into some of that history. That is just amazing because we don't often get to hear that sort of history, Elizabeth Kendall. Oftentimes we'll talk about what's happening today and sometimes the sorts of reports that we'll have. And I've spoken to Nigerian pastors on this very program. And reflected, and almost in an unbelievable way for our mindset here in Australia as to the size and significance Mm -hmm. of Christian churches, where I've had pastors who talk about having a a monthly gathering and hundreds of thousands, even half a million believers turn out for a worship event, uh, like on a monthly basis, so... The the way that the church has developed, and sometimes we like to characterize the church in those worship events, but when you begin to characterize what's happened uh, with the Christian element of Nigeria taking on a Christian-based education and the nation flourishing – that's a modern e- example, isn't it, of what the difference is that happens with Christian mission and the people who respond uh, to God. That's, it's just an amazing illustration.
1: And, and, you know, it's especially the case, I think, with Christians who have come out of darkness. So, uh, like, when you look at, say, say the Igbo, Yoruba Christians in the southwest and uh, the Igbo Christians in the southeast, They've come out of the deepest occultic darkness. They, they, are in no, they have no illusions as to the reality of spiritual forces and the spiritual world. You could not convince Ebo to be an atheist. <laughs> they know it. They know about the darkness. They know about the dark forces. They know about the occult. And they have become Christian because Christ is greater than all powers. They have found liberty in Christ. And so when they are called to pray and they are called for, that, for, for a Christian event, they have no doubts about the spiritual world that they live in. Um, so that's, it's all very much part of their, their being. And the thing is that this is the first time that nigeria has the possibility probably possibly of electing an ibo christian so i say this is this the 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 persecuted uh, the people of nigeria who had a genocidal war waged against them they are the most christian the most industrious and the most dispersed people in nigeria they're all over the country because they're good at business. They're in all the markets, everywhere. And now they are really vulnerable because their candidate, or the candidate Peter Obi for the Labor Party, is an I vote Christian. And 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 he is, he is coming forward saying, we don't vote. I don't want you to vote on the basis of region. I don't want you to vote because I'm from the north or the southeast or anything. I don't want you to vote based on religion. We need to take back the country from those who are corrupt. We want an end to corruption. We want an end to conflict. We want a new Nigeria. And he has a history as, as a state governor of an amber state in the southeast of um, frugal, frugal spending, anti-corruption, pro-education, and young people who are now calling themselves obedience after his name, Obi, they, it's a movement that is sweeping Nigeria, and I, I'm very fearful that we could see history repeat itself and that there will be a backlash against the Ibo. Everywhere. So and of course, I'm deeply anxious about this.
0: This becomes a prayer point for every single mm-hmm. person who's listening into our conversation today and recognizing the significance of the event that's coming just two weeks away. And as you say, if you reflect back to the last time they had a Christian president back in 1963 trigger of a civil war millions died and the possibility as a Christian is leading in the polls today if he wins office there may well be bloodshed we're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments our special guest is Elizabeth Kendall this is 2020 with Neil Johnson helping you make sense of life culture and current events from a biblical perspective 2020 on vision our talkback line is open. 1-800-316-316 to join into our conversation if you have a question about this very significant issue we're talking about today, a Nigerian election coming up just two weeks away. Before we go any further, though, Elizabeth, uh, I'm standing corrected. Uh, I got one little point wrong, and you didn't want to leave that uh, unattended. Uh, you, I was saying uh, first... Christian president back in the 1960s, but that's not quite accurate.
1: No, Nigeria has had a number of Christian presidents, but this will be the first ethnic Igbo president. If if if, Obi, if Peter Obi is elected, he could be the first ethnic Igbo president since their first president, which was in the 1960s. Now, when Nigeria, uh, he was deposed in a military coup and then there was another coup that put the Muslims in charge and, and a series of military dictators. All Muslims from the north controlled Nigeria right up into the 90, end of the 1990s. When Nigeria returned to democracy, they, uh, the people elected a Christian, or Obasanjo, a Yoruba Christian from the southwest. And it's not surprising, really, because you know the people he was up against and Muhammad al-Buhari, I think, might have been one of them at that time. I think he's been on the ballot every every election since then. Um, were pro-Sharia; they wanted Sharia law. It was they were very Islamic. I and mean, not only will no Christian ever vote for Sharia law, but most, a lot of Muslims won't either. So to run on a on a on a, on a platform of Islamic law was pretty much a losing platform. But Nigeria, and then good luck, Jonathan, who was the president before Mohamedou Buhari, the current president. He was also a Christian, also a Yoruba from the southwest. So the thing, the thing is, Nigeria has these two unwritten rules. You know, they're not actually in the constitution; they're not written down on paper, but they're it's accepted. It has always been accepted until now. Things have changed, right? But it has always been the case that, in fairness, people believed that the presidency should rotate from north to south. So once a a Muslim in the north has had two terms as president, which is all you're allowed to have, then it should rotate to the south. And they should have a southern president. And then after there's been two terms in the south, it should rotate back to the north. And that has happened. The other thing, until today, so the, the, this could be really, that really. This is flaring up now. The other thing that's always been an unwritten rule is that the, a party, a political party, if their presidential candidate was a Muslim, and the vice, then the vice presidential candidate would be a Christian. And at the next election, they would switch. They would put forward a Christian and have a Muslim as the vice presidential candidate so they would keep things try to keep things sort of even but this year it's all blown out of the water it's different and um, we have Muslim Muslim tickets and we have um, part them two main parties actually are both running uh, Muslim with a Muslim a um, uh, presidential ticket um, the, uh, the the part the main opposition party did not switch their candidates to allow a Christian to run. And that's where Peter Obi sort of pulled away from that party, the PDP, joined this little marginal party that holds something like one seat in federal politics and nothing elsewhere. And he joined them and uh, he's now running as their candidate and he is the only Christian Presidential candidate, and the four leading candidates who come from the four corners of the country,
0: and so he's a Christian, and, has changed. and leading in the polls. Uh, Elizabeth, yes. let me just throw you into the deep end here. Uh, I know you well enough. I think uh, I can do that. Uh, you've got the the Muslim president, Muhammadu Bihari who has been the champion of the Islamists, and he's retiring. It creates opportunity. Uh, When you say nobody really ever votes for Sharia law, usually it's imposed, uh, rarely voted for. Let me ask you, this is the hard question because you mentioned that corruption has been rife. Uh, We know as Christians uh, where the heart ought to be and that doesn't mean there's no such thing as a corrupt Christian but the the general consensus about the sorts of values that might be implemented uh, by legislation uh, is this is this thought, what I'm really saying here is that uh, is Sharia law uh, in fact, fueling corruption, and is Christianity a possible remedy? Uh, any thoughts here? Well Christianity should be a remedy.
1: But um, unfortunately, we've had Christian presidents and Christian governors and Christian senators who possibly quite nominal, (laughs) possibly uh, syncretistic, go to church on Sunday and then go to the witch doctor on Monday, that sort of thing. There's quite a lot of that in in Nigeria, particularly in the South. Um, You know, there are problems, and the problem is not so much Sharia, or even the desire for it, the problem is just basic greed. The amount of money that can be that can be uh, oh, can be accrued by corrupt military officials and politicians is absolutely astronomical. Now, one of the great scandals that has uh, erupted in in recent years, in fact, it, it really came to the fore in. Ah, uh, before the elections in 2019, is called the Armsgate scandal. Now, President Buhari used to be a military dictator. He was one of the House of Fulani military dictators, and uh, he was a general, also a general in the army. So he's very well connected with the military and particularly with the Fulani, his own tribe in the military. Um, he also has an agenda to Islamize Nigeria and. Fulani's, eyes, that is to make the Fulani the dominant, most powerful, controlling people in Nigeria, his own right, his own tribe. And one thing that has been happening over oh probably for more than a decade now is that military officials would go to the government and they would say, Oh, we need forty five million dollars for a couple of special jets, you know, military jets the government would go, wink, wink, of course you do, sign a cheque. And then they'd split the money between them and there'd be no jets ordered. They'd just earned themselves, their little clique would have earned themselves $45 million. And these sorts of corruption scandals in military procurement are quite common in many countries, but I think nothing probably as big as what happens in Nigeria. And what would happen then would be, Nigerian soldiers would be sent in to do battle against Islamic State and Boko Haram, and they would have insufficient ammunition. They would have no food rations, and they would get blown away. And so the the war continues and the procurement continues. And so uh, Christians are getting killed everywhere, and the generals and the politicians are getting richer and richer by the day.
0: Elizabeth, so we'll the come corruption back.
1: Corruption is enormous.
0: You'll, we'll continue after the news, Elizabeth. Let's talk about the likely possibilities here, because. If there is an election, not likely to be quite so easily cut and dried, a winner on the night, a smooth transition of power, what's the likely outcome for the Nigerian election?
2: Well, in the past, Nigeria has really had two main political parties. The all-progressive Congress, which is just to the left of centre, and the uh, People's Democratic Party, which is to the right of centre. But there's not a lot of difference between them and candidates tend to switch and swap all the time, depending on, you know, which side they feel like they'd like to be on or uh, which side suits them better. But it's basically been a two-horse race in every single election. This year, it is different. There are three leading parties coming from the four corners of Nigeria and representing the three main tribes that's the house of fulani the yoruba and the igbo and the two religions christian and muslim the um there it's really coming down to a three horse race actually between peter obi who is an ethnic igbo christian from the southeast the long marginalized southeast a muslim Yoruba from the southwest is running on a Muslim Muslim ticket which is unheard of. And they've done that to try and scoop up President Buhari's Islamist vote bank. So this is what's happening, you see. These, they're trying to uh, seduce the Islamist Muslims who would normally vote for Buhari. And the other party, is uh, Atiko Abubakar, is with the PDP and he is actually a very pro-business fulani muslim from the north he's, he's, he he opposed the the introduction of sharia law he's a businessman he's married to women from all across the country not just his own tribe muslims and christians and so people say he's the least tribalized the least sectarian of the muslim candidates but he too is trying to seduce President Buhari's Islamist Fulani vote bank. And one thing, for example, that he did was there was a terrible killing uh, last year in May, a a blasphemy killing in Sokoto in the northwest where a young Christian girl was accused of blasphemy by a boy whose advances she had rejected uh, and she was burned alive by a raging mob, beaten to death, stoned, burned, burned. And he, uh, and Artiko Abubakar of the PDP, who has always been regarded as fair and pro-business and anti-sharia, protested this terrible crime. But now, now that he's trying to woo the Fulani Islamists, he's taken all those posts down to try and and, and bring the Fulani Islamists into his camp. So we, we're probably going to have th- no, no candidate Will get the 50, more than 50 percent. Uh, Nigeria is heading for its first ever runoff presidential election, and it will be between the Christian Peter Obi and one of the other two um, uh, Muslim uh, candidates, probably Atiko Abubakar. Except the the other thing is that. Um, the the Yoruba Muslim is also known as the godfather of Lagos. He's got all these criminal charges for drug trafficking and everything hanging over his head and apparently his thugs are already in place all through the opposition strongholds and the Igbo residential areas of Lagos and the southwest to make sure he wins through violence. So it's already prepared.
0: Elizabeth, what can we make of the way typical uh, Nigerians uh, vote according to perhaps even socioeconomic status, Uh, poverty versus those who are growing wealthy? Because we mentioned that, You've got a nation that's awash with money and no doubt uh, the greed and corruption uh, gets those at the top of the tree uh, wealthier and richer and sometimes those who are at the bottom and suffering in poverty. I wonder if you've got any any thoughts here on the the socioeconomic conditions and whether people vote according to that or whether there's some sort of way that uh, those who are poor might be yearning for change. Uh, Thoughts here?
2: Well, I think in the past they haven't. I think people in the past have voted partly for who they hope will give them good governance. They often will vote for whoever can convince them that they're going to crack down on corruption, but it never happens. They vote very much along tribal and religious lines, especially as Islam has radicalised. That's become very much uh, an issue. They vote along religious lines. And if you look at a map of, like, an election map in Nigeria, you'll see that the north votes for a, the Muslim candidate, the south will vote for a Christian candidate. candidate. Uh, and it's just the country is completely split, uh, north to south. I think it's a little different now, actually. There's something very interesting about oil-rich. And it's not even just that Nigeria is oil-rich, Nigeria has an abundance of highly educated, highly skilled individuals. Um, you, you have some of the world's leading uh, thinkers in Nigeria, particularly through the South. And, and as I said before, the, the IBO became some of the most highly educated entrepreneurial people in all of Nigeria. So you've, you've got all this potential. But Nigeria actually now leads the poverty corruption sort of various indexes. There are more people in raw numbers, not percentages, raw numbers. There are more people living in poverty in Nigeria than in India, even though India has like nearly seven to ten times the population. India has brought people out of poverty. Nigeria is driving them into poverty and the young people especially are fed up with it. The young people are driving this obedience movement, the movement for Peter Obi and a new Nigeria and the young people are the largest cohort uh, in the voting population. So I think people write Peter Peter Obi, Obi off and they say he doesn't have the money to buy the votes, he doesn't have the money for the campaign but the young people, they are hungry. They cannot get... Their schools are falling apart. They cannot get jobs. They want change. They really do.
0: Well, corruption, one of those very difficult things to deal with, uh, even when you win power, there's a bureaucracy that often is the corrupt bureaucracy. So no doubt, Elizabeth Kendall, and I want to get onto this quickly and not waste any time around Uh, getting all sorts of detail that might not necessarily be something that might move us to prayer. Because here in Australia, uh, it's not easy for us to have any influence over what might be happening in Nigeria. It's, you know, who do you send money to? Uh, Well, we can pray. And I wonder if you've got any thoughts here about a call to prayer of Australians for an issue like an election in on another continent uh, and for the nation of Nigeria and, and how you think we might approach prayer for our brothers and sisters who actually find themselves vulnerable to uh, even the possibility of genocide. Uh, thoughts here about prayer?
2: Oh, I think that prayer is actually the most important thing that we can do so like you mentioned uh, it, you know in your introduction how when the church is growing it creates these religious tensions and and it does uh, Muslim Muslim clerics don't like seeing Muslims become Christians so it does create tensions but it's all part of the spirit the great spiritual conflict so you've not only got a uh, uh, growing numbers of Christians. You've got growing numbers of Muslims across the north becoming Christians. Christian ministries are now establishing safe houses across the country to help Muslims who have become Christians. You've, we hear stories of whole villages becoming Christian because they are just fed up with the the the, Im, the uh, I don't know the spiritual impoverishment of Islam and the endless conflict. And and it's a marvelous story. So what we have is one of the continent's largest – well, the continent's – I think it would be the continent's largest missionary-sending nation. It's probably what I would call in that second tier of missionary-sending nations. So you've got America and India and South Korea at the top, and then you've got countries like Nigeria that are are just huge. They are big missionary-sending nations, and – Satan will do everything to to oppose it. Uh, there are many people who believe that Nigerian missionaries will play a key, integral role in the re evangelization of the United Kingdom and even Western Europe. So Satan is after the Nigerian Church, and and I really believe that while we we can't we can't do a lot that's physical, we can't. Uh, to help the Nigerian church. We can pray and God is sovereign. And I think what we have to do is we have to be alert. We have to be aware of what the situation is. We have to be, we have to monitor as as best we can. I'm doing a whole month of prayer bulletins on Nigeria at the moment to try and help people be aware of what's happening so that if they hear a flicker, then they know what that is going to mean. They know that there are Christians vulnerable all over the country to ethnic cleansing and pogroms and even genocidal violence. Uh, We need to be at prayer. We don't know what God is doing, but we know that God has a plan and we can trust him with it. We just have to put it in his hands and pray and pray and pray.
0: Interesting, isn't it, as a Christian believer, uh, you want to pray for uh, God's will be done uh, and you've got a Christian candidate uh, versus uh, Islamic candidates. Uh, We will feel drawn to pray for the victory for the Christian candidate. Now, just to touch on that for a moment, because... Uh, when you talk about turning points and those sorts of things and recognizing Nigeria as one of the biggest missionary sending uh, countries in the world now, that you might expect that as Christianity continues to flourish under a Christian president, that the mission sending activity might flourish too. So, if you do pray into this, uh, you really could be affecting not only Nigeria, but all of those, you know, all corners of the earth where Nigeria is sending those Christian missionaries.
2: Yes, in fact, Nigeria, had the Nigerian uh, Evangelical Missionaries Association actually has a uh, a special, oh, i have to see if I can find it. And it actually has a special program which is called... Oh Nigeria fifty here it is. Vision fifty fifteen it's called by the Nigerian Evangelical Missions Association and when I worked with it with the World Evangelical Alliance I got to know the head of that association, amazing, amazing man, amazing story and an amazing organization. So their Vision fifty fifteen is to train. 50,000 Nigerians within 15 years of, I think it was 2020, as gospel bearers to the core north, the Muslim north of Nigeria, the Muslim Sahil, Muslim North Africa, the Islamic Arabian Peninsula and all the way back to Jerusalem. So, you know, you've got Chinese church wanting to, evangelize all the road west back to Jerusalem through the through central asia you've got the nigerian church wanting to evangelize all the way north up to jerusalem from from lagos and port port harcourt it's just amazing no wonder satan is actually he is on a mission to make sure none of it happens and we must be on a mission to just to to just Show God that that we care about this, to pray about it, that His will will be done, and uh, and that the, the Nigerian church fulfills the purpose that God has for her.
0: Elizabeth, I suspect uh, some might have just uh, missed the. F- so you'd fifty thousands. This is their goal: 50,000 evangelists being trained mm, yes. to send out from Nigeria. Uh, What was the fifteen? What was what was the fifteen? Within
2: fifteen years, so I think I think this vision was put forward in twenty twenty. So to train fifty thousand Nigerians within fifteen years as gospel bearers, right through that Muslim Northern Nigeria, the Sahel, North Africa, the Middle East, and back to Jerusalem.
0: And just a very quick comment, because how wealthy is the Christian church in Nigeria? If you're going to have a vision like that, uh, money flows to make that happen. And I know there's critics of some of the ways Nigerian Christianity you know, comes around. Sometimes we call it a prosperity gospel. And uh, there are people dealing with all of that and trying to make things right all the time. But the truth is here it seems to be that it takes a lot of money to be a missionary sending nation and there must be a lot of money in the Christian church in Nigeria any thoughts here
2: Well it's very it's quite it's, there's a similarity I would say with the Chinese church yet again in that the Christian people of Nigeria are actually the most business orientated, they're entrepreneurial, they're highly educated which is another reason why the North hates them. There's a deep jealousy there. So they do generate their own wealth. There is a problem with prosperity theology. It's In fact, it's appalling. It's the worst export from America that the that, that church in America has ever sent out into the world. It's disgusting. So there are There are pastors in southern Nigeria who will pray for you for a price. They have fleets of Mercedes cars, and that's disgusting. There's no doubt about that. But there's also this fact that the Christians are actually very entrepreneurial. They're professionals. They're educated, and they are sending missionaries out into Muslim northern Nigeria, the Sahel, North Africa, and the Middle East. And uh, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So even more than money, it takes faith and courage. And we can uphold them in this uh, through our prayers.
0: Well, there's no doubt, and, you know, every listener to this program has been listening for a while will know that we do have a warts-and-all mentality. We don't ever pretend that there's perfect elements of the Christian church in different dimensions, and but it's what God is doing that is so substantial and so significant because uh, we're seeing just an incredible move of God In nations uh, like Nigeria and uh, those nations that are part of uh, continental Africa, it's also happening in South America. As you say, Elizabeth Kendall, in China, here we are in Australia and we suffer a little because we feel like the sand is falling through our fingers and somehow or other we feel like uh, things there's the brakes on uh, in spirituality in Australia, but the rest of the world, you might even say, is in revival. And for us to be able to appreciate that, Uh, That is very significant and especially how that might direct our own prayers. And Elizabeth, just honour to you. Uh, You do just a wonderful job. Uh, I know that listeners and people have said to me uh, their favourite guest on 2020 is Elizabeth Kendall. And so uh, we'll plan another one of these updates before too long. Just love the way you get your head around the nitty-gritty, the details of what God is doing in the earth. And along with that comes the threat to Christians who find themselves in vulnerable positions. And uh, even in this one we're talking about today, potential for violence, tension, uh, even as has been seen in the past, genocide. Elizabeth, uh, let me point people to how they can connect with you and uh, i know you could always do with an extra friend a prayer partner and even financial donation as well uh, for listeners here is elizabeth's website to connect with her elizabeth Kendall. that's k e n d a l elizabeth with a z Kendall.com You can sign up for the Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin and the opportunity to connect with and support her work financially. You can follow Elizabeth on Instagram. Uh, You've got all sorts of initiatives just to attract young people into these sorts of conversations and anyone who's heard our conversation over this past hour will know that everyone will be excited to hear the things God is doing in the earth. There's a couple of books that Elizabeth's written, Turn Back the Battle, Isaiah Speaks to Christians Today and after Saturday Come Sunday, understanding the Christian crisis in the Middle East. Uh, The connecting point is ElizabethKendall.com. Elizabeth, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and heart with us once again today on 2020.
2: Thank you, Neil.
0: Thanks
1: for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.